Well, I just want to say to you guys how proud I am of this church. Um, to get to see and be a part of and kind of in on the inside track of what God's doing in the lives of the people in this room, I'm just going to tell you I don't deserve to be there. I, I, you, if, have been, if you've been with us for a while, you know uh, my story and where I've been and what God's saved me from. Uh, but God is doing big things, and he is changing lives, and we've gotten to share that through testimony that you've seen on video. We've gotten to see that in um, uh, just the, the way that we've seen our community groups and the de developing relationships build and how people are connecting. But another way we've seen that over these last several weeks is that God has used you and this people to raise more than enough money that we're going to be able to buy that building. So um, I'm going to say this, and I don't want you to hear me saying anything negative about any, any um, group that I'd hoped we could raise money from, but the reality is, is that the vast majority of the money that we've raised is from people sitting in this room. So thank you for letting God use you and the money he's blessed you with in your life to bless this church. Um, I, I am confident that it is a beginning for us. It is a new beginning. And that's ultimately why we began at the beginning of the summer. Had no idea we were going to be looking at a building. Had no idea that this, this day was going to be here. I felt convinced that we needed to work through some vision stuff and do some core group development because our church had kind of turned over and, and the reality is, is the, the, the vast majority of our church has been with us for less than a year and so we needed to reform and, and kind of start fresh. And in, and in a way, you could say we're replanting the way. Um, as we started that process, had no idea where we'd be standing here, sitting or, or positioned, I guess would be a better way, where we'd be positioned at the end of the summer. And today as we close, we're going to uh, ask those that are members and have been members to reaffirm their covenants with us and those that haven't joined but have been walking this with us to affirm your covenant or covenant alongside of us. And so... If you're visiting with us today, I'll give you a little more direction in a little bit. But if you're visiting with us, it's not to call you out or to make you feel like you don't belong. We believe that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong not because we get to say who does or doesn't belong, but because you belong to Jesus and you're his child. And we want you to be a part of what God is doing in this church. But it's a special day for us because it's a day that we'll stand as a family recognizing what God's called us to, recognizing in real, tangible, significant ways what God is doing among his people in the way. And we'll stand and we'll lock arms figuratively. I guess we could do it literally if you wanted to. Uh, but we'll, we'll be able to look one another in the eye and say, I want what God wants for you. I want you to be who God's called you to be. So it's going to be a special time uh, for us in that. Now, we're two weeks away from really finishing this uh, sermon series that we're in, and it's the distinctive series that we've been, been working through. All of these sermons, the vision series at the beginning of the summer, and this distinctive series, it's all online. I'd encourage you, if you've not heard it, to begin listening to it, uh, just to hear basically who we are striving to be, who we believe God's called us to be. And some of these distinctives are important because 
they not only distinguish us from the outside world as those, not in a sense that we're separated or don't love or don't want to live isolated lives. We're called to live in the world but not of the world. It doesn't do that, but it does draw a distinction between us and those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. For example, those who don't believe in Jesus Christ oftentimes would tell you, in fact, I've never met somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus who will say that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible word, good for preaching, teaching, uh, or, or teaching rebuke uh, and, and correction. And people just don't feel that way on their own. You know, that's typically a, a Christian worldview. So it distinguishes us from them. But it also, some of these views also distinguish us from other churches. And the idea is that we're not trying to draw hard and fast lines between us and other churches. What we're striving to do is really build a unified perspective of how we hold to certain issues so that we can walk in unity. So we've dealt with things like the Bible, like um, church organization, church government, um, church uh, authority and Last week we talked about money and, and how we'll teach um, how we will teach uh, on tithing. Uh, and this week we get to deal with another popular topic. And so if you're visiting, I'm glad you're here because it's going to be a great day. We get to talk about church discipline. Everybody say, "Yeah, we love that." We're all for it, right? And church discipline, I'm just going to say it's a lot like money. It automatically begins to evoke a response. As soon as you hear those terms, it's like, come on, I, I, I'm 18 years old. Who are you to tell me what I'm supposed to do and not do? Come on, really? I don't even have to come here. You're lucky I showed up. Yes, we are. We are. But we've already studied it through the, through, through the summer as we talked about church and its authority and responsibilities. And you'll see it today as we break it out more specifically. The church does have authority in the life of believers. Hear me. The life of believers to act and, dis- and discipline. Not only does it have the authority to do that, it has the responsibility to do that. So if we don't do it, not only are we not exercising the authority that Christ has given us, that God has given us, but we're not fulfilling and living in the responsible way that we've been called to. So today we're really going to define that view and we're going to talk about what church discipline is all about. And I've got three perspectives I'm going to build for you. I'm going to build for you the precedent of church discipline, the purpose, or I'm sorry, not the purpose, but the um, process of church discipline and the purpose of church discipline. So we're going to work through those three points. And as we do it, As usual, because our view is that the Word of God is inerrant and infallible, we're not going to build this from Seth's experience. We're not going to build it from the the best practices that churches have out there. We're going to strive to understand it and build it from the Bible. And we're going to, to look and see what God's Word has to say about discipline in the church. And so we're going to start with the precedent for discipline. Why would the church discipline its members i mean is there a reason is that just something we've come up with today because we're trying to control and manipulate people well no in the bible we do see a precedent a a reason a a a history all the way throughout of god striving and and working to see his people disciplined in fact we not only see it in the scripture but i'm going to show you that each member of the trinity 
is active in the discipline of God's people. So I'm going to give you these three ideas under the precedent of or precedent for discipline. The father expects it. He didn't put his people together and say, I hope you can figure out how to live together and just get along. In fact, when God first chose a people and officially stepped out of heaven, well, he didn't really step out of heaven, but he made himself known and said, this is my people. And he chose the Israelites. When he did that, he gave them laws to follow. And I recognize we're not Jews and we're not necessarily under the law, but let me just build from this idea. In the book of Deuteronomy, just one of the books that they build these laws from and commands from, nine times, nine times God is giving a command and saying, if people don't follow this command, this is what you're to do. And he did that more than nine times. But nine times, nine of the times that he did this, he says, in this way you will purge evil from among you or from among Israel or from Israel. You see, the intent God has for His people is that they are to reflect Him. Nine times that happens. I, you know, I mean, maybe if it happened once, we could overlook it, right? Nine times. He's pretty serious about it. The reality is, is that in, this, in the law, the things that He was commanding these people to do, I, I, if, if, if a guy stole, he could get stoned. In fact, of those nine times, most of them ended in physical death. Purge evil from among you. That is harsh. That's Old Testament God, right? I mean, that's what our culture says. It's Old Testament God. But let me tell you, that same God that ruled in the Old Testament rules in the New Testament. Listen to these words from Paul. I'm just giving you that as a, as a precedent, as a, as a place to begin. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because they're bragging about the fact that they have in their midst someone living in sexual immorality that even the pagans wouldn't deal with. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, maybe that happens in porno. But I'm going to say that that's not even acceptable in the real world that we live in. Not even the worst of people will walk around and assume that that's okay. Because I'm thinking that if a dad catches his wife with, a, with his son, he's going to be upset and hurt because he recognizes it's wrong. We don't have to be saved to know that. High schoolers, when they're, when they're hanging out together and start hooking up together, they don't have to be told it's wrong for their other, their significant other, to go and do something and hook up with someone else. Because we recognize immediately, you don't have to be saved for this, we recognize that there's a level of commitment once you start hooking up. And I'm talking about hooking up in the carnal sense, just so you know. But I'm trying to be polite. It, you don't have to tell people this. They just know it. Right? But Paul is dealing with this situation. The, the Corinthian church, they're so happy. Well, they're bragging about it. He tells them they should be ashamed. That they should kick the person out. That they should hand that person over to Satan. But then he says, he doesn't just deal with it in terms of sexual immorality. He says in verse 11, 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of of the brother if he is guilty. Now what he's saying is, do not associate with someone who calls themselves a Christian but lives freely and comfortably in sexual immorality or greed. Come on, do those even go together? Most of us struggle with greed and selfishness. There's a difference between struggle and just living in it, though. I'm, I'll just throw that out there. Sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. You mean to tell me if I try to get over on my taxes, that's what, really, that's, that's what a swindler is. Somebody's trying to get over, trying to, trying to work situations in their best interest. Not even to eat with such a one. For what, to, what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those in. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Listen, I told you about the nine nine phrases. Purge the evil person from among you. That same Old Testament language Paul is bringing to a New Testament church. And by the way, the Corinthian church, they weren't Jews. They were Gentiles like you and me. So apparently it applies. The Father expects His people to discipline and purge evil from among them. That's a kind of corrective discipline. That's a a corrective action. When you see someone in sin and they're not striving to live repentantly in their sin, but rather they're just living it up and loving their sin, He says, deal with them. Purge the evil from among you. Not only does the Father expect it, but Jesus commands it. Matthew eleven twenty seven through 30, Jesus is teaching. And it, we don't need all of this, but I want you to see the context. I want you to see why Jesus said what he said. He says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone, here's the caveat, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, When Jesus decides to reveal the Father, that's when we get to know God, right? Here we go. So Jesus, when He chooses, He reveals the Father, and then we get to know God. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You've heard that verse, right? Man, we love that verse. It's one of those verses that Matt Chandler talks about, a coffee coffee cup verse. That's one of those verses we love because it's all about... Come, who you who are weary and heavy laden. Oh, Jesus wants to take our load. Make life easy for us. Take my yoke upon you. Listen, take my yoke upon you. Mm, Maybe life isn't all roses and flower gardens. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is like, oh, well, Seth, you said it was a yoke. And he said, maybe it's not all sunflowers and, or, or, or flower gardens. But the reality is there's still a yoke he's talking about. But what he's doing, Jesus is using a phrase that they understand in their culture. You see, that was a common phrase that rabbis in that day would have used. They, the rabbi would have said, come and take my yoke upon you. And what he was saying to them, to his students, to the people who followed him, that rabbi was saying, come and submit to my teaching. And that's why immediately Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. 
Jesus standing in a place of authority in a position that can teach with authority says, come, take my yoke upon on you and learn from me. You see, Jesus is commanding us to come and sit under his teaching. What happens when you sit under someone's teaching? You become their disciple. And when you become someone's disciple, you are disciplined by them. I don't know, maybe, maybe this never happened to you, but when I was in school, and I know it never happened to my kids because we'd quit doing things like this in America because uh, we are so much more evolved and educated and smarter now today. But when I was in fifth grade, I can remember one time my teacher, her name was Miss Banks, and I didn't like Miss Banks very much. She, she was social studies, and I didn't really care about social studies either. In fact, there wasn't many things I cared about except having fun and just being who I wanted to be. Even in fifth grade, I was just this rebellious little punk. Don't tell my mom I said that. She's sitting in the room. That's, yeah. She already knows. Uh, but, but anyway, so I decided, you know, I was hanging out with this kid, and we were talking back and forth and not listening to what she was teaching, and we decided to have a spitball war. But instead of shoot the spitballs at one another, we decided to shoot them at other people who weren't paying attention to us. We were going to team up and just start shooting whoever. And I got the bright idea I got the bright idea to decide it would be funny to shoot Mrs. Banks. So I shot the teacher. I didn't shoot the sheriff, but I shot the teacher. That just came to me. Sorry. I I shot the teacher. And you know what happened? I got sent to the principal's office. And you know what the principal did? He paddled me. I was a disciple at that school, and I got disciplined. And maybe it doesn't. Maybe we don't discipline in the same way, but there's still discipline that happens in schools. Why? Because we have to have order and structure with the students who are learning. I can tell you, I listened in Miss Banks' class the rest of the year. It worked. It hurt too, I'm just going to say. But that's the reality of it. When Jesus is saying this, he's saying, come and take my yoke upon you. And he's, he's standing in a place where he is comparing his teaching now to those of the rabbis, to those who are, who, are, who are standing over here in the Jewish tradition and saying, take my yoke upon you. And the reason I read the context is I want you to hear the reason Jesus said this. Because he wants people to know his father. And he's going to be the one to reveal them to his father. Or reveal his father to them. You see, Jesus knows that his teaching is effective. Jesus knows that his teaching works. Jesus knows that he has the truth. But he knows that the, the, the rabbis, he knows that the Jewish tradition and the Jewish religion, it, it's a heavy burden because it doesn't help you. It, it, the difference is like, it, it, it's, I was in China one time and we were walking up this mountain and I'm carrying this pack that was just heavy. I was full of gospel materials. We were distributing out in the middle of nowhere. It was heavy. We were climbing these mountains. I am not in the shape to do. I, I was younger and in better shape, and I still wasn't in the shape to do what we were doing. But we were doing it, and it was just, oh, it was rough. And we came on this Chinese guy who's walking down the mountain with two big bundles of wood strapped to another piece of wood, not a board, but a tree trunk that's not carved to fit his shoulders, that's not in any way made to make his job easier, 
but he's got it on his shoulders and he's just a little guy just coming along with his wood hanging on his shoulder. We picked it up. I'm telling you, it hurt. It was a heavy load, but I can guarantee you this. If we would have taken this wood, and we know it because we, we took the wood off and we were able to see how heavy it really was. If we had taken the wood and strapped it in our packs, we'd have been better off because it fit. You see, it was designed for that purpose. You see, the yoke of Christ, it's not that we don't feel the yoke. And it's not that it's impossible for us to carry, but along with Christ, this yoke works. And it's easy and light because as we carry it, we get to know the God who saves us, who created us. And the joy and peace overwhelm us. But it doesn't mean we don't get to obey or we don't have to obey. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden your life is all going to be roses and flower beds. In fact, I'd say as believers in Jesus Christ, our walk is often more difficult than those who don't. Because now we're not just doing what we want to do, but we are striving to submit in obedience and live in a holy manner. Jesus commands people to come to Him and put on His yoke and learn from Him to be His disciples. Not only that, the Great Commission, man, every good, every good Christian loves the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. People who are disciplined with the teaching of Christ. Disciples and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. You see it? Jesus commands discipline in His church. It's not the corrective discipline that we see taking place in Corinth, but it's a preventive discipline that shapes and molds His people into His likeness that they might begin to more to, to reshape His reflection in them. You see, we were created in the image of God, but in the fall, that's marred and it's taken apart. But in the, in the conversion, when Jesus comes in and saves us, he enables us again to reflect Him, to reflect our Creator, to reflect the image of God. And that's what He's doing. Come, put my yoke upon you. Not only does God, the Father, expect it, not only does Jesus command it, but the Holy Spirit facilitates it. Oh, if this was left to us, we wouldn't get it done. Galatians 5, and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control against such things there is no law this this verse is the it's the fruit of what the holy spirit does in us it's not something we work for it's something the holy spirit works out in us and the term that's translated self control is equates with then just equate with it's the exact same thing of self discipline in fact over and over and over in scripture you and i are called to live in a self-controlled manner, to live in temperance, to live a disciplined life. And here we learn that the Holy Spirit makes it possible. He facilitates this work. Every member of the Trinity is involved in the discipline of God's people. Don't miss it. That's the precedent of discipline. That's why we have an understanding. That's why we know that we have to at some level deal with and understand discipline and the church. But does that mean that we play a part in it? Does it mean that we have some part or something we should do in an organized fashion that disciplines other people? I mean, don't, 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 we, really, don't we really believe that? Don't judge me. We can't judge one another, right? 
Well, I think we learned in 1 Corinthians 5 that we don't judge the people outside the world, but we are certainly to hold one another accountable. That's a difficult thing. But yeah, we do. There is a process of church discipline. In fact, Jesus, again, teaching Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, here's the authority that, that, that we're given to do this, the responsibility that we're given to do this. Jesus teaching on discipline, tr- teaching on con- confrontation for sin. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's big. That means the church has authority to say, you're living in sin and you need to quit. Not just the church, but the individuals in the church have the authority to look and be involved in one another's lives. And as you bind it on earth, it's bound in heaven. doesn't mean you get to make up a lie and go up to the person and say, hey, yeah, I heard you're committing adultery on your wife, and I just think you ought to quit that. It may not be true. Excuse me. I mean, we we can't just make stuff up and and think that God's going to take our side. That's why there's this process. He says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree, remember the two or three that was mentioned just a a bit ago? If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Here is another verse that we'd love to use to say, oh, Jesus is with us when we're two or three gathered. Absolutely, I, I believe he is. But I don't think that's what that verse teaches. Where two or three are gathered in unison and confronting in sin. That's what this verse, that's the context this belongs to. It says that we have authority and responsibility to discipline one another. Now I know, that, and this is a true statement, there's a lot of preachers out there that say, oh, this is a very specific instance when one Christian sins against another Christian. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, that's exactly right. This is a very specific instance. This doesn't necessarily apply in Corinth where Paul was writing his letter to the church because they were all being foolish and loving it. So he steps up and begins the process of discipline, leadership immediately dealing with the church. But I think nine times out of ten, this is where it all starts. The conflict we face in church, the the difficulties we face interpersonally, the, the struggles we have with one another, oftentimes and most oftentimes are caused by sin against one another. And it clearly lays out who's responsible to deal with that first. And so here we've put together, I've put together a graph. I've actually stolen this from a guy named Jay Adams. Um, He wrote a book called The Handbook of Church Discipline, one of the most insightful books. It's actually a very small, easy read, but it's very insightful um, about the process of church discipline. And the thing I appreciate about him most is he starts with number one, and he says number one is self-discipline. Because here's the reality of it. 
if you are striving already to live a self-controlled, self-disciplined life, if you are already living under the influence of the Spirit, the likelihood of you doing something and sinning against someone else already is reduced. And then the reality is we're people. It's going to happen. The verses are in the Bible like this because we're people and we're going to hurt one another's feelings. In fact, the, the church is supposed to live such a life that we had to be given commands to forgive one another because we're supposed to annoy one another. And we have to have something in place already so that we can deal with annoying one another. And so it starts with self-discipline. It starts with you. Discipline yourself. Live the life God's called you to. Strive to be who He is making you. But recognize that you're not the only one in the church. And that you're either possibly going to hurt someone or sin against someone or they may sin against you. And here's the process. Number two is one-on-one. This is the place where this breaks down, I think, most often. Because when you're sinned against, what's our typical reaction? To immediately go tell someone. They've hurt my feelings. They've, that person screwed me over. They sinned against me. And immediately you begin this process of gossip and you're putting another person in this place Now, I mean, this doesn't work in every situation. I'm just going to be honest. It doesn't. If you're a husband that's beating your wife, don't expect your wife to come to you and say, you've sinned against me, you beat me up. Because she's probably already scared you're going to hit her again. It's okay, women or husband. I guess if you're a husband and you're getting beat up by your wife, here's permission. Go tell somebody, you know, if... if, if you're a guy and you can take that. Sorry. This really is serious. Though. I mean, the reality is this happens. You recognize that Springfield is one of the highest per capita cities for spousal abuse and child abuse? It happens. It's likely, statistically, it's likely that this happens in our church, that there's somebody in our church that abuses his spouse. I hope it's not you. Statistically, it's possible. But the reality is, don't expect your wife to come to you and say, you've sinned against me. It doesn't, this isn't a legalistic process that we're going to hold to. The reality is, at at the point when you, when you decide, okay, well, yeah, I beat her up, but she should have come and confronted me. We'll say, okay, well, you just need to forgive her for that. And we're going to stay. There's reasons why this doesn't always work in every situation. Recognize it. This is fairly specific, but one-on-one is where it starts. You are responsible to confront the people who have wronged you. Not all your friends and not those people that are going to support you and make you feel good about how bad you've been treated and take your side. Because as soon as you begin drawing those people in, you know what happens? You begin driving a wedge in the church. And you begin, you begin to be responsible for an even greater sin, if you ask me because you are wreaking havoc with the peace of the church. But then as you confront, confront with truth and grace. That's exactly what Jesus did to you. He came to you and he spoke truth. But he did it in a very gracious manner. Truth is, we are all fallen sinners. Romans 3. But Romans 3 also says that even though the wrath of God has been revealed, 
there's a righteousness that's been revealed as well. Truth and grace, they go together. So as you confront, do that. Third, witnesses. Bring in witnesses. This isn't bring your best friend who's going to take your side and just continue to heap on the guilt. This is bringing in people of a level of maturity that can come and, and, and inspect and investigate and, and ultimately help you demonstrate that your claim is true. Because you don't get to just stand up and say, so-and-so did such-and-such to me, and I think we ought to kick him out of the church. Because the reality is, is people's feelings get hurt, and they act in ways that sometimes are vindictive. Believe it or not, good Christian people do things like that. Witnesses, they prove your case. They don't necessarily have to be eyewitnesses. The reality is, is that eyewitnesses are not always going to be available. And if there are, that's great. But if there's not, those witnesses are people who will investigate the claim, who will look at it, who will investigate, who, who will who will question the person, and stand together to bring truth and grace to ensure that the discipline is taken care of. And they'll call that person to repentance. If they don't repent, number four, it, it gets brought to the church. Now you'll notice there's a dash line and an A and a B here. And there's nothing that's really called out that gives us specific understanding. There's so many perspectives on how to interpret this phrase about bringing it to the church. Some people say that means the leadership. Some people say that, that that means the body as a whole. The reality is I think that probably at some level it has to be made public. Here's what happens. When we live in sin and are unrepentant, we lose our right to privacy. If you're a sinner sleeping around on your wife or if you're a sinner who is sleeping around on your husband, if you are in sin looking at porn when your spouse is away, if you are, if you are in sin stealing from your job and you get caught and you don't repent, you don't have a right to say what happens anymore. You are the one in sin. And I don't mean to be harsh about that, but that is the teaching of Scripture. You don't have a right any longer to keep it private. And the way that most churches handle these things, I think, has made us weak as a New Testament church. Not just us, but the church at large. And so the process by which we will encourage the working of church discipline is that when it's time to begin to announce it to the church, that you will bring it to the elder board first. You and the witnesses will bring the claim to the elder board. And the elder board will seek to reconcile the situation. And if reconciliation can't be wrought, can't be brought about, if, if the person contend, continues to be unrepentant, then we're not going to let that person leave and give the church a black eye and say things like, well, I wasn't getting what I wanted for my family or they were mean to me or they were rude to me. If it's going to go to number five where we send them out as Gentiles and tax collectors, we will make a public statement that that person was in sin. We're not going to list all the details necessarily. Certainly are not bound not to, but ultimately striving to be at peace with one another anyway, we will strive to do it in a mature and professional and, and, and considerate way. But a public statement will be made to the church 
and a public decision, a church decision will be made to move to the next step. Number five, out they go. Treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors. And a lot of people come to this phrase and they say, well, yeah, that's great, but how do we treat Gentiles and tax collectors? We are supposed to love them and evangelize them and spend time with them, but in the whole realm of teaching on church discipline, we can't ignore also 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul gives us just a little more detail and says don't even associate with them. If we come to this point and this is made, I'm just going to tell you, I, I am dealing with this in a cold academic manner and this is not something that's easy. People are involved and it hurts. I'm going to tell you it's as hurtful for me as it is for them. I am emotionally distraught when I have to have conversations like this. And in the history of our church, we've had to have conversations like this. It sucks. It's the hardest part of what I do. So please don't hear me just coldly and crassly saying these things. But ultimately, ultimately it comes to this. If a person continues to carry the name of Christian and they want to live in any manner that they want to live, we are told not to associate. And so if we excommunicate or disfellowship with them, that means we disfellowship. That means we break fellowship. That's difficult. And it hurts and it sucks and it's it's hard. But remember the precedent. Purge evil from among you. What's the purpose in all of this? Why can't we just all get along, right? Why, why, why can't we just all just let them be? You know, they're just they're just sinning a little. Just let them be. What's the purpose? Well, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 12, verse 6 through 11, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. God does that. And God's given us the authority and responsibility to do God wants His people disciplined for the Lord, disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So just consider this. I mean, that's what, that's what this is saying. We don't have a lot of time to break this out, but ultimately as we live life and we struggle with things and we have, have, have obstacles that we face and we suffer in the flesh and we deal with people's confrontation and interpersonal problems, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. That's pretty amazing. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now here's here's the idea is that God is treating us as his children. He's looking down on us and he recognizes even when we've turned 18 and think we got it all figured out. 
we don't have it all figured out and we need discipline. And the reality is that this discipline will continue until the day He brings us home. And praise Him for it because it demonstrates that He loves you greatly. He loves you as His child. The reality is is that discipline happens because of God's love for you. If God didn't love you, He'd let you be. How scary is that? He'd just leave you alone. You can have your way. That frightens me. Because if He's left me alone, where am I left? He cares enough to discipline. Discipline happens because of love. And therefore, if we don't discipline one another, we can't say we love one another. Don't look at another Christian and say you love them if you are not willing to confront them when they sin. Now, I'm not saying put on your police hat and walk around looking for every little mistake somebody makes. Oh, they didn't, they didn't, they just took that gum and didn't pay for it. You know, oh. Don't, nah, that's not what this is calling us to. But when you recognize a person living unrepentantly and just straying from the path that God's called us to, and we're just running around willy-nilly because we all like to do that. We can't say we love one another if we aren't willing to discipline one another. Love happens, or discipline happens because of love. For the moment, listen, verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That word discipline means teaching. It doesn't mean necessarily punishment. It can in certain contexts, but in this case, it could mean either. It's difficult to be confronted with truth. And sometimes it hurts. This is a difficult sermon to preach. It's a difficult sermon to study for because I recognize how broken I am. And the reality is, is that as we grow in the gospel, we don't recognize how good we're becoming. If we're maturing, recognize how desperately we need a Savior. Think about where we've been. If you've been with us this summer and you've been going through the gospel-centered life, think about the graph of how it starts at a point in time where conversion happens and you recognize, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm broken. Jesus is perfect. God is perfect. And He gave Jesus and He bridged the gap between my fallen sinfulness and His perfect holiness with the cross. That's where the graph starts. And as you mature, those lines continue to separate. Because as you mature, you recognize in greater form and fashion your own sinfulness. Paul, not not in the beginning of his life, but to the Romans, near the end, in the middle of his ministry, after God has used him for innumerable things, says, what a wretched man I am. Because as he matured, he recognized even greater that he was broken, sinful, fallen, and desperately in need of a Savior. You see, the idea is is that as this happens, we recognize more and more 
that we need this discipline. It's not pleasant to be disciplined, to be shown we're wrong because we like to be right. It's not easy to deal with this. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline happens because of love. But discipline happens to bring about peace, to bring about unity, to bring about the, 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 the restoration of relationship. It, it brings it vertically between us and God, and it brings it horizontally between one another. Interpersonally, it brings unity to God's people. Peaceful fruit of righteousness, discipline happens to sanctify you. Jesus didn't save any of us to leave us where we were when he met us. He saved us to make us like him. And that doesn't happen overnight for most of us. It's a process that begins at the moment of conversion. And he begins to shape. And he begins to hammer. And he begins to mold. And he begins to work on you. And he begins to shape you. So that you can reflect his image again. That is a beautiful and an amazing truth. In fact, the thing I love most probably about the book that Jay Adams, Jay Adams wrote, I, I brought it because I, I didn't think. He says, church discipline, a right and privilege of every church member. Totally different than we normally perceive it. Totally different than we normally think about it. But it is a special blessing from God that not only he disciplines but he gives us people authority and responsible to discipline one another. Let's pray. God, you are good and gracious. And I know, I know that church discipline is not popular. I know that it's difficult to deal with. Your word promises us that it's going to be difficult to deal with. So we shouldn't be surprised by it, God. I pray that if there's emotional responses happening in the room and they're trying to push back against this, God, I pray that any of the words that I've spoken that would be in error and that would, would speak incorrectly about how you desire us to discipline and, and carry out church discipline, I pray that you'd help us to push those aside and listen to your scriptures again. Hear the word of truth, God. Shape us by it that we might reflect you. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name.